Well, good morning to you and welcome back to Dr. Sigvitonstad's Sabbath School class. We are, I think, at Lab 4, Laboratory 4, where we are exploring cosmic conflict themes um, in the Bible and in texts outside of the Bible and um, kind of around the world even. Our next um, speakers, uh, starting next week, March 17, we're going to have Dr. Harvey Elder speaking. Uh, his talk is called Participating in the Cosmic Conflict. And then on March 24th, David Werner and Richard Reed will be back to do Job Part 2 by popular demand. <laughs> and uh, March 31st, um, Dr. Dan Keto will be speaking on the subject of Hinduism and the Cosmic Conflict and dealing with some of the thoughts he had after his trip to southern India recently. Uh, today we'll be talking about Charles Dickens, and I've titled, um, titled this presentation Dickens in the City of God, and with allusions, of course, to uh, St. Augustine's um, work. And I'll be showing you, I think, how we can read the Gospel of John through A Tale of Two Cities. Well, I'd like to start by having... Uh, if Mike would read the epigraphs here, here I'll, I will use these epigraphs as a framework for the message um, for today. The kingdom of God is within you, Luke seventeen twenty one. In seasons of pestilence, some of us will have a secret attraction to, to the disease, a terrible passing inclination to die of it. And all of us have like wonders hidden in our breast only needing circumstances to evoke them. Charles Dickens, Hell of Two Cities. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John 12, 43. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. Augustine, City of God. Book 14. A Tale of Two Cities, written during Dickens's middle period, stands apart from his other novels for several reasons. Its historical setting and level of symbolism creates a telescopic or panoramic effect, with the narrator standing at a greater distance from his subject than the narrator does in any of the other tales by Dickens. This perspective is advantageous from the standpoint of revealing the landscapes and populaces of two European countries, both dealing with their own conflicts, although the nature of those conflicts differ uh, from one another. At the same time, these differences create difficulties for readers as they have to sort of peer through layers of meaning in order to get to the story, which is what they primarily come to the text for. At the outset of the story, England is in the thick of war with the American colonies, and France is experiencing the beginnings of internal conflict. The novel's timeline takes us through the initial years of the French Revolution in the early stages of the National Assembly through the Reign of Terror. To be sure, the narrator pans in at intervals to focus on three distinct but interconnected storylines. <clears throat> 
The storylines are of characters who ferry between England and France for various reasons. In the first story, Dr. Alexander Manette is released from 18 years of wrongful confinement in the Bastille prison and reunited with his daughter, Lucy, who he has never seen and has already presumed uh, is dead. In the second story, a love triangle emerges when Lucy falls in love with Charles Darnay, who has been charged as a French spy in England. Darnay escapes his death sentence and is declared not guilty because of a chance maneuver made by the brilliant but dissolute Sidney Carton, an assistant attorney and Darnay lookalike, who immediately falls in love with Lucy upon seeing her as a witness at Darnay's trial. The third storyline forms a backdrop behind the other two and consists of a feud between the noble family Evermont and their tenants, resulting in a revenge plot by French citizens Ernest and Therese Defarge that will spur the initial peasant revolts of the revolution. Dickens originally conceived of the novel while play-acting in his friend Wilkie Collins's The Frozen Deep, a story about a protagonist who sacrifices himself for his enemy. In his preface to A Tale, Dickens wrote, A strong desire was upon me at that time to embody it in my own person, and I traced out in my fancy the state of mind of which it would necessitate the presentation to an observant spectator with particular care and interest. As the idea became familiar to me, it gradually shaped itself into its present form. Throughout its execution, it has had complete possession of me. I have so far verified what is done and suffered in these pages, as that I have certainly done and suffered it all myself. The story was serialized weekly between April and November of 1859 in Dickens' new journal, All the Year Round. Other direct influences on a tale include The Dead Heart, a play about a substitutionary sacrifice during the French Revolution, and Thomas Carlyle's History of the French Revolution. I teach A Tale of Two Cities. Um, I ask my students the question, well, what two cities are we talking about? And there are various answers to that question. Uh, We typically think, of course, of Paris and London, but um, there are other answers that work as well. In fact, if you think about it, all of these answers fit in some way or other. Uh, Both Alexander Welsh and David Rosen have shown that A a Tale of Two Cities follows an Augustinian trope, a trope so familiar, Rosen writes, that the title can hardly not evoke it, the two cities of man and God. I would like to pursue the thought today that Dickens constructs his metaphysical cities through character contrast and either consciously or unconsciously locates the seat of the cosmic conflict in the free agency of the individual. I just wanted to uh, review the conflicts again, uh, read the storylines again. So Dr. Manette's um, background story and the Defarge's revenge on the Evermount family, which will, of course, and that story will entangle itself with the love triangle story because Charles Darnay is actually Charles Evermond, just to remind you a little bit about the plot. So Charles has left his home country. He doesn't want to have anything to do with his his family because they have been uh, neglectful and cruel towards their tenants. And he leaves France and goes to England and unfortunately uh, neglects a little bit too much of his estate. And in the meantime, the Defarges are sort of working out a plot of revenge.
The novel's backdrop of the French Revolution is a point of interest for, for a scriptural interpretation. David Rosen writes, Dickens's analysis of the French Revolution and A Tale of Two Cities operates primarily on two grounds, myth and metaphysics. And his critique of the insurgents is ultimately a religious one. Apart from his commentary on the role of the French Revolution in overturning its medieval institutions, Dickens uses the late 18th century Paris setting to call attention to the fickleness of humanity, as well as to show how the failure to control extremes in reason and emotion can lead to tragic ends. While he is in full sympathy with the immediate context and necessity of a revolution in a country in which the king has abandoned his people, the revolution in Dickens is largely a spin-off of one, uh, one woman's plotting to avenge her ancestors. To Dickens, Madame Defarge is the historical figure who drops the first axe on the neck of the government and who fastens the first head to the pike, an act that would become a tradition in the real revolution. To Dickens, the mob acts deliriously as, as it rages through Paris, slashing and killing almost at random. But then suddenly, uh, the mob turns soft and the members you know, as they return home, they speak tenderly to their children. There's this um, strange effect uh, that, that doesn't make any sense. They, they come home after, after sort of being on a rampage, and then they stand patiently in the breadline with their children speaking tenderly. To Dickens, the mobbin cries for blood one moment, and then the next raises a young goddess out of the crowd to laud and adore, parading her on their shoulders through the streets. To Dickens... The crowd's tendency towards murder one moment and towards celebration the next pointed to undercurrents of the disease at the heart of these extremes. In fact, disease as a motif is invoked throughout the novel. For Dickens, the disease is part of a metaphysical reality, and the only effective remedy will be a spiritual one. A Tale of Two Cities is a book of doubles and contrasts, Scholar Albert Hutton writes, Dickens establishes the two-ness of everything to follow, his title. Characters are twinned and doubled and paired. The setting is doubled. The women are split. The historical perspective is divided between an 18th century event and its 19th century apprehension. So uh, here you see that, that the doubles sort of operate on different levels, uh, from character doubles um, down to the, the cities themselves. Um, and Mike, if you could read this uh, slide for us. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Throughout the novel, Dickens alludes to themes implicit in a biblical worldview, such as redemption, forgiveness, conflict between forces of good and evil, eschatological vision, and ultimately resurrection. Recall to life is a motif running through the novel from the beginning to the end. 
While Dickens habitually valorizes Christian principles in his novels, he often expresses disdain for the church's institutions, as seen in comic parodies of his most devout figures. Yet he was firm in telling his children to follow the example of Christ as it was found in the New Testament. It's interesting, just to pause here, um, when, uh, right before Dickens died, he had a statement in his will he wanted two things. Um, one, he did not want to be buried at, in Poets' Corner in West, Westminster Abbey. Well, he didn't get that one. Um, the other thing that he didn't want was he didn't want his, his uh, children's, the book he had written on the gospel for his children to be published. And he didn't get that one either. <laughs> so um, we, we do have that story in publication. For our purposes in this class, we can find a loose structural similarity between a tale and the Gospel of John. And so I'm just going to sort of review some of these, um, some of these, uh, structural similarities. So in the beginning, for example, we have a kind of memorable, uh, way of introducing the book. Um, and we have a focus on light and, and light, you know, as it, as opposed to darkness. And, um, we have, the story in John about the wedding at Cana where the waters turn to wine. Well, at the beginning of, of, uh, Tale of Two Cities, we have, uh, in, in Paris, I'm sorry, in a small town, Saint Antoine, we have a wine cast breaking and the, 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 uh, peasants, you know, quickly run and gather around it and they try to sip up as much of the wine as they can. And one of the peasants writes the word blood on the wall. Uh, symbolize it. He writes it with wine on the wall. And so this idea of the, the blood wine motif is uh, significant in both of the stories. Uh, we also have the story of a, of a well. Uh, and in John, uh, we have the well, which is uh, representative of the water of life. But in A Tale of Two Cities, there's a reversal that happens. Uh, there is a peasant who is hanged for um, a murder over the well. And so they, they allude to the fact that he's, he's dripping poison into the water. And so it's actually the water of death in A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, we have healing at the pool in John. We have death at the pool in A Tale of Two Cities. Um, so we have Jesus as the bread of life in John. And um, it's interesting to think of this from the French Revolution aspect because um, as the price of flour rose in France, um, at that time, the people could not afford to make bread, which is their staple of life. So again, there's a reversal in a way. And we have a contrast in character. Again, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He is the good shepherd. And yet we have uh, the Monsignor who refuses to feed his tenis, tenants. He refuses to grant money to a poor man's uh, wife, who is, who is uh, the man has uh, passed away. All she wants is a grave marker, and he refuses to give that to her. And so um, we also have a scene where he recklessly kills a child with his carriage and then just sort of dismisses the act by tossing a coin at the distraught father. So we have definite contrasts, um, but also a kind of line that's that's following John in a way. Um, we also have an interesting scene at the end of A Tale of Two Cities. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Dickens writes in um, a, a scene where a young woman blesses Sidney Carton with a kiss before he dies. And that, I, th I think, is like the Mary Magdalene scene in John. And apart from that, uh, we have a few others. Uh, uh, one thing that becomes really clear in the book is the 
significance of the guillotine and how it replaces the cross. And Dickens writes this, It was the sign of a regeneration of the human race. It superseded the cross. Models of it were worn on breasts from which the cross was discarded, and it was bowed down to and believed in, sorry, and believed in where the cross was denied. So we have another kind of parallel there. And from that point on in the novel, it really does sort of parallel John all the way to the execution scene. I, I just threw this in kind of because I, th- I thought of it. I guess the story of Herodias does not occur in John, but it does occur in the other Gospels. I, I think of Madame Defarge in a way like Herodias. There's a kind of bloodlust that she has. She's not going to stop until she has what she wants. And, of course, the uh, execution is very similar as well. So there's just a, a, a kind of affinity there. Also, um, this story is largely about finding, finding the Father, which I, I see um, when Jesus says, you know, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father um, in, a, in a real way. I think the book of John is about finding the Father through Christ. Well, in A Tale of Two Cities, there are lots of father-child relationship conflicts and, um, and otherwise. Uh, from, from the first part where Lucy finds her father... Um, from to the second part where uh, Charles Darnay actually leaves his fathers to go to England, and then to the, the last part where um, where Sidney Carton actually finds a father figure in Mr. Lorry. Um, I'm going to have Mike read that scene um, when Carton uh, sort of alludes to the idea of, of Mr. Lorry as a father figure. You were a good man and a true friend said Carton in an altered voice. Forgive me if I notice you were affected. I could not see my father weep and sit by, careless. I could not respect your sorrow more if you were my father. You are free from that misfortune, however. Though he said the last words with a slip into his usual manner, there was a true feeling and respect, both in his tone and in his touch, that Mr. Lorry, who had never seen the better side of him, was wholly unprepared for. He gave him his hand, and Carton gently pressed it. Two figures significantly stand out in contrast to each other in terms of how they live and how they die. Madame Defarge seeks revenge for the deaths of her family members by the Evermond brothers. Her intention is to see Charles Darnay as the last Evermond heir brought to justice by the tribunal. She is not satisfied with the death of Darnay, but also wishes for the deaths of wife and child. Sidney Carton seeks to save the Darnays through a series of actions that lead him ultimately to the guillotine and the Darnay family back to England. According to Rosen, Madame, Defarge acts, Madame Defarge's actions hinge on an ideology uh, of history as destiny, whereas Carton operates on a principle of chance, choice, or free will. He writes... If any figure in the novel believes herself an instrument in the hand of destiny, it is Madame Defarge. She is absolutely confident in the eventual fall of the nobility. Vengeance and retribution require a long time, she says. It is the rule. She does not fear. Carton's ideology of free will is signaled in his metaphor of a card game when he is bribing the spy Barsad into his plan. 
Dickens resolves the ideological dilemma of destiny versus free will in the novel. And we'll see how he does that. He does that by favoring the view of free agency without excluding entirely the sense of divine involvement, showing in a way how human choice might coincide with providential guidance. While the figures of Darnay and Carton... I'm going to back up for a second. Um, Mike, would you mind reading this slide? The novel justifies Carton's outlook without quite sliding the question of destiny. In a letter written shortly after composing the tale, Dickens suggests that fiction should aspire to imitate the workings of providence. Indeed, um, intimations of the divine will seem to permeate the text. Individuals are entirely free and responsible for their own actions, actions that yield necessary providential consequences. I think we could pause here for a moment if anybody has a thought on this or a question about it. I don't know if this is appropriate this time, but over the past two pl- uh, slides and thinking about what happens in the book, um, got a couple things going on. Got um, this mob action, mob rule type thing going on, and um, and then we've got this personal vendetta that's going on, Madame Barge. And you know when you look at back at the time of Christ, what happened? We have this mob saying we want Barabbas crucify Christ, well, that's the mob rule taking charge here, and so we have that parallel with this book, but it's all instigated by this personal vendetta, and in Jesus' case, it's Satan that's got his vendetta going on, and and so Madden Parr's playing the role of Satan, if you will, is the way I see it, so um, that's kind of drawn on my past recollection of the book, but what you've been discussing mm-hmm. so far. So I, I find it interesting that, that uh, Dickens has kind of drawn those parallels out. Yes. Good parallel, yes. And that's a very interesting point, what you're bringing up there from the book. Uh, I read this book before I started high school, and I always thought about it. It was about London and Paris. I never thought about it. <laughs> I, I didn't know about Augustine and the <laughs> City of God in those days. Uh, and I don't remember all that much of what I thought it was all about. But the Gospel of John is very similar to what you're bringing up from this book here on the question of that there is a divine plan, there is intentionality, there is a script, Jesus is executing that script, and everybody else is too, even as they do their own will. You know, they're all sort of contributing to, to the overall, overall message. You know, acting freely, not predetermined, not, not predestined, and nevertheless, there is a sort of providential consequences here. So that's that's a very, very, you know, if that is how he makes it come out in the tale of two cities, that seems to fit the Gospel of John very much. Okay, I'm, I'm going to move on now to looking at um, the contrasting characters, the seeming contrasting characters of Darnay and Carton. While the figures of Darnay and Carton are at first cast as rivals, opposite in their personalities, pursuits, life situations, nationalities, and character traits, their differences are shown in the sense of purpose and self-aspiration. Darnay's untiring pursuit of personal achievement and fulfillment is in sharp contrast to Carton's alcoholic despondency and reckless attitude. 
Carton finally finds a purpose in Lucy's happiness, although he has already lost her to, to Darnay at the outset of the story. However, he is able to channel his desire into an appropriate, if somewhat strained, friendship. A closer look at each of these two characters, I think, reveals that they are also quite alike. Both are intelligent, practical, and motivated toward good ends. If nothing else, they certainly have the same taste in women. Traditionally, A Tale of Two Cities, like many other Dickens novels, has been read as a conversion tale, tracing the, the change of heart of a dissolute man, finding meaning and purpose in love, and finally deciding his love is worth the price of his life. Barbara Hardy states that in Dickens, as well as in other novelists, the hero is converted by seeing and understanding his defect and his origins. Insight and fairly explicit revaluation set him free for a fresh start. Furthermore, she contends it is possible to see how an author, such as Dickens, uses the framework of his story to qualify a belief in determinism by a belief in freedom. Uh, we have environment, heredity, and chance combining to make uh, the conversion necessary. Even if individuals are given the insight and power to remake themselves. In the case of Sidney Carton, as we will see, the power of intellect and love combine to overcome heredity and life habits. He is able, as Hardy stipulates, to recognize and formulate his own limitations. It is true that Carton has changed in certain ways by the novel's end. He has possibly soft excessive drinking. He has shown a sense of directed purpose and has opened his heart to Mr. Lorry. Yet I would like to argue that these changes are more superficial and do not constitute a transformation. For from the outset of the story, Carton's actions have been motivated by moral purpose, and so his seeming change of heart at the story's conclusion is, is superficial at best. To be clear, we do not see Carton's personality change in the course of the story, and neither do we see a substantial character change. It is not clear that he has stopped drinking, for example, and even if he has, according to Alcoholics Anonymous, he would still have the disease, if not the behavior. I am going to argue that what we do see is a series of events that reveals, I should say, that reveals Carton's hidden heart. And if I could get Mike to read this slide. From the very beginning, Dickens forces the reader to discriminate between the popular judgment about Carton's generosity and the possibility of his having hidden merits, often by putting his condemnation of Carton in the wrong mouths. And so characters like Jerry Cruncher, if you know the novel, or um, Mr. Striver, who is um, the lawyer Carton works for, uh, they, they sort of have their opinions expressed about Carton. But we're not so sure that we trust those characters. Rather, we do trust Carton for some reason, even though uh, on the surface, Carton doesn't seem like a trustworthy character. The revealing happens once Carton, uh, sorry, the revealing of, of uh, Carton's heart, I should say, happens um, after he arrives in Paris, having followed the Darnays and Mr. Lorry there of his own accord. Uh, Carton's actions in Paris have parallels with the scenes of Christ's final days, his last supper, and his crucifixion. Once Carton arrives in Paris, he sets in motion a plan that leads him to a willing death. So if I could have Mike reading this one. The mark of Carton's genius is this very ability to penetrate to the most important, the most essential levels, to see beyond the limited vision of others, or to say what others dare not say, 
In other words, Cartan appeals to us through his freedom from convention and from constraint. In contrast, then, to the other good characters whose lives are ruled by restraints of one kind or another, and despite our sense that we must disapprove of him, Cartan stands out as the most vividly authentic character in the novel. Okay, so there's a kind of irony in how Cartan is presented from a physical or superficial, superficial level, um, as opposed to what we really feel about him through the novel. We are not so much impressed with Cartan's transformation as we are with his ability to stay true to his internal moral ground. While Cartan's decision to die for love represents a change in his life plan, it does not represent a change in his inner being. He has already declared to Lucy his willingness to die for her or for anyone she loves. What is impressive about Carton, then, is his willingness to maintain and go through with his conviction that Lucy's happiness is worth the price of his life. While we might call his discovery of purpose inspirational and see that it changes his ultimate end, we are hard-pressed to say that he has experienced a change of heart. His heart has, rather, stayed true and he is only following the strong convictions he has always had. Okay, so so we uh, see earlier in the story uh, when when Carton has decided, you know, to die for Lucy. And it's much earlier than anything that actually happens in Paris. So um, I could ask the question, you know, when was the decision made to die? Well, it was, was it at the time of the crisis? Was it just before the crisis? Or was it long before the crisis? Well, I would say that it's probably, it started long before the crisis, but then it had to happen again and again, um, all the way until the very end, where he's standing right at the bottom of the steps of the guillotine and has to walk up the scaffold. Um, here we have the letter uh, that Sidney dictates to Darnay as he's doing the switch in the prison so that he will die in place of Darnay. Uh, he dictates this letter to Lucy, and I'll have Mike read that letter. If you remember the words that passed between us long ago, you will readily comprehend this when you see it. You do remember them, I know. It is not in your nature to forget them. I am thankful that the time has come when I can prove them. That I do so is no subject for regret or grief. So this sort of shows us that the decision was made a long time before. Um, We do have, uh, like I said before, the scenes that that are from the time they, they reach Paris and on, sort of parallel the Last Supper and the last events of Christ's life before his death. And so we have the first one here. We actually have a traitor. Um, and how in Dickens um, we have a sort of cooperation with the traitor. So Sidney uh, sort of tricks uh, Barsad into getting him into the prison. And that leads to his death, of course. Um, in John, we have uh, a not exactly similar uh, scene, but we have, in a way, we have Jesus sort of, in a way, cooperating with um, the traitor. So um, maybe Mike could read both of those scenes. Sidney Carton filled another glass with brandy, poured it slowly over the hearth, and watched it as it dropped. It being all spent, he said, rising. So far, we have spoken before these two because it was well that the merits of the card should not rest solely between you and me. Come into the dark room here and let us have one final word alone. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. These solemn words, which had been read at his father's grave, rose in his mind as he went down the dark streets, among the heavy shadows with the moon and clouds sailing on high above him. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. In a city dominated by the axe, alone at night, with natural sorrow rising in him for the sixty-three who had that day been put to death, and for tomorrow's victims then waiting their doom in the prisons, and still of tomorrow's and tomorrow's, the chain of association that, that brought the words home, like a rusty old ship's anchor from the deep, might have been easily found. He did not seek it, but repeated them. Before the um, event happened, before he finds out that, that Darnay has been sentenced to death. Let's, let's go on with this one, too. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now that the streets were quiet and the night wore on, the words were in the echoes of his feet and were in the air. Perfectly calm and steady, he sometimes repeated them to himself as he walked, but he heard them always. So here we see uh, both a sense of destiny working with individual choice again. Um, and then another uh, scene, oh, sorry, this is the ending of this scene then. So he's going to uh, become resolved at this point. Go ahead, Mike. A trading boat with a sail of the softened color of a dead leaf then glided into his view, loaded by him, and died away. As its silent track in the water disappeared, the prayer that had broken up out of his heart for a merciful consideration of all his poor blindness and errors ended in the words, I am the resurrection and the life. Mr. Lorry was already out when he got back, and it was easy to surmise where the good old man had gone. Sidney Carton drank nothing but a little coffee, ate some bread, and having washed and changed to refresh himself, went out to the place of trial. You can almost hear the echoes of um, John when he's talking, when he writes about Jesus, you know, going to the last, um, to the last scene of his life here. Um, and the imagery is interesting. In the first paragraph, you have a lot of death Im- imagery. And so we know that, that um, something is going to happen. Um, and you'll recognize some of these slides I took from Dr. Tonstad's talk, uh, I wanted to try to make the relationship uh, more clear. So um, if we could have um, we could have another reader for a face like Flint. Thank you. <laughs> Isaiah 57, therefore I have set my face like Flint. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We 
have Middle English there, so it looks like, <laughs> okay. And we said we have a sense of resolution and purpose at this point in the life of Christ. And, and then could you go ahead and read Carton's last night for us as well? Checking, checking his steps, which had begun to tend towards an object, he took a turn or two at the already darkening street and traced the thought of his mind to its possible consequences. His first impression was confirmed. It is best, he said, finally resolved, that these people should know there is such a man as I hear. And he turned his face towards Saint Saint Antoine. So we have the same kind of resolute purpose. Um, Both Christ and Carton choose to reveal themselves to their enemies. And there's just a scene from the book there. Original illustration by Fizz. Okay, and um, again, another slide that I took from Dr. Tonstadt's talk about the ambiguity of being lifted up. Uh, we had, we had uh, talked about that earlier. Um, the cross, of course, is something that we would look up to if we were standing at the bottom of it. I just wanted to point out quickly here that um, the guillotine was also a place where you would stand and look uh, you know, from the position of below it and uh, look up to what was happening. Um, so from all accounts that I read, and, and it's interesting how many um, websites are devoted to how to build your own guillotine. I'm not really sure why that is, but um, but they, they show historically how it was set on the platform. And of course, the reason for that was because they, it was a spectator event, right? So uh, the knitting women, the knitting women in and the Tale of Two Cities will count the number of heads that roll off the guillotine. And um, they're, they're cheering and that kind of thing. I'm moving quickly right now because I want to get to the very end. But I, I show in the, in the last few slides here that um, the Darnay and Carton are really more alike than they are different in terms of what they do at the end to comfort other people in their last hour. They both resolve to do that. And um, even though Darnay doesn't get his last hour, hour he's actually spared that. But Carton does um, take over and walks into Darnay's shoes very easily. And at the end, uh, Carton's vision, he sees um, the future, which holds uh, the possibility of a son um, born to the Darnays, which, uh, the son who has his name. And so his name carries on beyond um, his death, and that that person will have the influence that he never had, that kind of thing. So um, there's a sense of resurrection even at the very end of a novel. And then uh, another slide from Dr. Tonstad's uh, class, The Ambiguity of Glory. Um, just want to read these two passages um, so you can see the comparison. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. And if I could have Mike read the, the um, telling last lines of the story of Tale of Two Cities. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts, in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And just uh, wanting to comment on what I kind of see as... as, um, something that could help us resolve the rest work conflict in a way. Um, so, uh, it says here, and so Carton, in his limited way, defeats the purpose of the revolution, um, which was the slaughter of the Epermans, and is able to change the world for the better. Um, just wanted to cover one more thing that I think is 
very important in this novel. Um, at the end of the novel, Dickens definitely has his audience in mind. He definitely has his readers in mind several ways. I'm going to talk about the second way, actually. Um, first of all, we're, we're pulled back into the plural sense, the we, um, the first person plural. Um, when you go to the beginning of, of the tale, you see um, it says the very first passage says, we had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going straight, or sorry, direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. So the sense of inclusiveness that Dickens brings in at the very beginning comes back at the very end. And it's very powerful what he does. Uh, it, he, he pulls a trick on us grammatically, and I want to show you how this works in these last three paragraphs. So, uh, Mike, I'm going to have you read again. She kisses his lips. He kisses hers. They solemnly bless each other. The spare hand does not tremble as he releases it. Nothing worse than sweet, bright constancy in the patient face. She goes next before him, is gone. The knitting women count 22. Okay, so what, what is uh, discussed here, this is the, the, the figure of the little seamstress who is with him at the very end. And then I, there's an interruption in the text, and, and this is... I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Okay, so go ahead and read this one, Mike, and we'll see what happens to the subject of the sentence. The murmuring of many voices, the upturning of many faces, the pressing on of many footsteps in the outskirts of the crowd, so that it swells forward in a mass like one great heave of water, all flashes away. 23. So the question I have is, where is the subject in this sentence, and why did it suddenly drop out? Who is on the platform at this point is another way to ask the question. I'm going to say the subject's 23, and, and suddenly that individual just becomes a number. Okay. A mass. Right. That's one point. Of the and the number 23 is, is significant. Uh, some some uh, commentators have said that it alludes to uh, the 23rd Psalm. Uh, Though I you know, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Um, so the number 23 can also stand in for, for many different things. So I'm wondering, what, what happens to the subject of the text? This is what I think is happening. I think this is why it's so powerful. I think at this point, Dickens calls the reader into the text. And so the reader actually has a kind of virtual experience of hearing the voices and um, seeing the faces turned up at the very last. And I think that, that that's one uh, piece that adds to the power of the novel um, in a way is uh, when we actually do the exchange ourselves um, as a reader Suddenly, I am on the platform. Suddenly, you are there on the platform. And it could have been any one of us stepping into the shoes um, of Carton. So um, I, I think that that's a really brilliant move on the part of Dickens. Um, we, can, we can all sort of experience that. Um, in the end, I just want to say that there are two main cities represented in Dickens. And I think that um, aside from the, um, the cities that we see on the earth, we can also say that um, they are the metaphysical cities of man and God. And I, I just wanted to end with a couple thoughts, but before that happens, if we have a chance for time, I'm going to switch over to the... In closing, I just want to read from Psalm 40, verse 7 through 8. 
Then said I, See, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Yes, your law is within my heart. Thank you so much for being with us today.